Hi, everybody, and welcome to a symposium, a Signum Symposium with Dr. Holly Ordway. And I'm delighted to introduce you to her. Um, I'm sure most, if not all of you, have heard about this wonderful new book that she's just had published that is setting the Tolkien scholarly world aflame. Um, and it is writing some wrongs, I think. There it is, Tolkien's modern reading. Uh, it is writing some wrongs in the way in, in which uh, people, many of us, have assumed Tolkien's library and past reading to be. So I'm really excited to talk to her today. So welcome, Holly. Well, thank you for having me on. This is just a real, a real pleasure to be here with you. Great, good. So let's get cracking straight away with some questions. But audience, don't feel like all you've got to do there is sit where, there with the beverage of your choice, with your feet up, eating bonbons. You too should be joining in. So please feel free to put questions in the question box. And our very own Dr. Gabriel Schenk will be handling all of those questions as we go along. So keep them coming and we will get to as many of your questions as we can. Right then, Holly. So first of all, let's start with a really nice big general question. And let me ask you about your connection to Tolkien in general. What is it that drew you to Tolkien's work in the first place? And, and when did you start reading him? Well, this is, this is a big question because uh, Tolkien has been really a part of my imaginative life for pretty much as long as I can remember. Um, I, In fact, I don't remember when I first read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings because I only remember rereading them. Uh, so I encountered <laughs> them relatively early on, um, loved them, um, and they just became part of my sort of child childhood's imaginative furniture. Uh, along you know, Chronicles of Narnia and Hobbit, Lord of the Rings were just really, really important books for me as a girl. Mm. Introduced me into the whole genre of fantasy, which I loved, which I got into. Uh, so I've you know, kind of grown up in, in Middle Earth in, in a sense. And then um, when I was a teenager, I think I must have been an early teenager, I came across a copy of Tolkien's On Fairy Stories and read wow. it. And that completely rocked my world because it introduced me to literary criticism. It was really my first glimpse of <laughs> what would turn out to be, little did I know it, my future career. Because <laughs> here we have this author whom I loved writing about a genre that I loved but helping me think about it as writing, which I had not done before. I had uh -huh. enjoyed it, but I hadn't thought about how it worked. And here is Tolkien in this magnificent essay, tremendously complex essay, where he's unpacking how does fantasy work, and yet he's doing it in a way that doesn't um, pull it apart, doesn't murder it to dissect. Um, it makes it more engaging, more lively, more fascinating. And so I can fairly say that Tolkien made me a literary critic. And I've been thinking seriously about that essay for now more than 30 years, you know, just having it help me think about the way that literature works, the way that fantasy works, the way the imagination works. So it really was almost inevitable that when I did my dissertation, um, I did it in fantasy literature, had Tolkien's Lord of the Rings as kind of the pivot point and his, his essay as sort of my framework. Um, and then that exploration got me thinking a lot about um, the earlier fantasy scene, you know, the, the pre-Tolkienian fantasy scene. So I wanted to see how he was set in that, that history. And then 10 years after that, um, it got me starting to think, hmm, I wonder what Tolkien had read of this mm -hmm. earlier fantasy scene. What had he read of modern literature? Nobody seems to really think he read much. I wonder if he read any of these. 
I think I'll find out. That was 10 years ago, and here we are today. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually leads me beautifully into my next question, because I wanted to uh, immediately go into talking about this book. So if you can, tell us a little bit about writing this book. Um, how did you start? I, mean, I can get now what made you want to research this, because you just explained that to us. But it sounds to me like, because um, you just said, you know, has anybody written about this? No, nobody's really written about this. How do you start with something for our audience? How do you start with something that nobody has really addressed before? Where do you go? What do you do? Well, really, the, the first thing was just asking questions, asking the right questions, um, because you, what what really got me was thinking about this was first the question of, well, what of the early fantasy authors like Morris and Lord Dunsany had Tolkien read? Because I knew they were significant and knew they were the right era. So that was, OK, I can check up on that. But kind of the larger framing question for me also was, how do we make sense of The Lord of the Rings? Because The Lord of the Rings has been such an you know, incredibly important book for me personally um, and as a literary critic. And you can just see how tremendously popular and engaging and um, and not just popular, but in a kind of transformative way. It really it gives people insight into the way that the world works. It gives them insight into their own selves. It's an amazingly rich and powerful book. But if you were to step back, as you know, some of the early you know hostile critics did. Oh, it's about a bunch of, you know, elves and dwarves and a magic ring. Like, if you look at it that way, superficially, like, well, this doesn't seem to be really particularly relevant to the modern era and our modern issues. It's, and yet it is. Mm -hmm. And that bothered me because I knew, obviously, that Tolkien is a medievalist. And, I, and that almost put me on a different um, career track because I started my um, master's degree in medieval literature inspired by Tolkien because <laughs> I wanted um, to be a medievalist like him. Um, and I, I started out and then I decided that, that that wasn't the direction that I wanted to go in. I wanted to do modern literature. Um, but from the beginning, I've been very aware that Tolkien is a medievalist. He's deeply rooted in medieval literature, of course, and then the linguistic issues, of course. But I found that that was inadequate to explain the power of The Lord of the Rings, because I enjoyed reading things like Beowulf. But let me tell you, people don't take Beowulf to the beach, you know, like it's just medieval literature has its enduring appeal. I've taught medieval literature. It's wonderful stuff, but it's not having the effect. It's not resonating in the way that The Lord of the Rings does. So I just found myself saying there, how do we explain this? How do we explain Tolkien's enduring relevance and power. So that was kind of my backdrop issue. And then the more immediate issue was, did you know any of these folks? And so I started my research um, with the essay that I knew best, which was on fairy stories, um, and um, looked at what he had mentioned in that, um, in that essay, aided by the fact that Verlin Flieger and Douglas Anderson had, had brought out this amazing edition of the drafts of on fairy stories, which right. has more material. And I, I got pretty easily about you know a couple dozen titles from looking at this. And I distinctly remember this point in my research thinking, wow, I've got something like 24 or 25 modern authors that he knew. Wow, that's a lot. And I end up with you know 100 and you know 40 odd authors, 200 odd um, titles. But I remember feeling quite pleased, like I have some substance here when I hit 25. Um, and then that started me thinking, well, if you knew these, 
he clearly is reading amongst modern literature. What else did he read? And that led me to just scrutinize everything I get my hands on, interviews that he had done, his letters, um, interviews with his friends, his family, his colleagues, um, his students, um, and looking at articles, you know, um, you know, things that he'd given interviews for, looking at um, audio interviews, um, going to different archives, you know, even things like, um, you know, I went to the Oxford Union Library archives and looked at the librarian suggestion books to see had he written any, you know, requests for book titles in, in those books. Turns out he hadn't, eh, oh well. Um, but he was a member of the Oxford Union uh, Library as, a, as an undergraduate. Um, even like getting a, a photograph of um, his, his, um, him in his study and getting a high resolution picture and looking at the spines. Uh -huh. I was in fact able to find a few more titles that as far as I know, nobody had mentioned before by looking at, literally looking at the books on his shelf um, in a high res picture. <laughs> So just as people are now doing with people on Zoom and they're looking at the bookcases behind them. <laughs> exactly. Who? It, nobody apparently had done that before. Um, and just getting this mass of information, um, looking at references in his published writings and his drafts, and just seeing where had he mentioned an author, where had he shown that he knew an author, and mm -hmm. and discovering that there was just an enormous mass of material that I completely did not expect. Um, and then I had to figure out what does this all mean? Um, and one of the decisions I had to make as I got so much material was to make the dividing line that this was only going to be about books that I could give evidence that he had actually read or owned or that he, that he knew. Mm -hmm. Because there's a real temptation in, in Tolkien scholarship to talk about you know, possible parallels and things right. that he might have read or probably read or et cetera. And you can do some good work with those kinds of things if you're really clear about what you're doing. But there's been a kind of muddiness where people will say, oh, well, he must have, you know, he, he, he drew a source from this without being able to show that he, he had in fact read it. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the things that I resolved to do was not to discuss any author for whom I did not have evidence that Tolkien read. And it meant that a lot of stuff went on the cutting room floor that was pretty interesting. Um, but nope, nope, I'm not gonna do that because I, I think that th there's plenty of material and then, and then some as it is. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I'm interested in the, what you were just saying there about loads of things hitting the cutting room floor actually, because I did wonder, um, yeah, the, the things that you say you cut because you didn't have proof for it. But the things that you did have proof for, was there anything that had to hit the cutting room floor anyway, that kind of kill your darlings thing that you had to cut for space? Well, I couldn't talk about all the things at the length that I necessarily wanted to talk about them, but every book or author whom I found evidence for reading is in the book. Um, because right. I wanted it to be comprehensive. So some of them only have a half sentence um, and a footnote, because but they're there. And so somebody else can look at that half sentence, follow the end note, um, look it up and you know, off, off they go. Um, but all, all of the authors whom I identified as, as what I called certains are in. Um, right. The ones that hit the cutting room floor were the probables um, you know, for instance, I think there's a good case to be made that he had probably read um, Chesterton's play Magic, um, mm -hmm. but I couldn't tell that he had. Arguably, could I have argued that he he read it because he read other Chesterton? 
I could possibly have done that, but I had so much other other material that I knew that he had read. Right. Or with John Buchan. Um, and I know this might surprise some people because Buchan is one of the authors who's gotten the most attention because he's the only author that, that Humphrey Carpenter really is willing to name as a modern author that Tolkien read. So ironically, there's loads and loads of um, scholarship essays and things on possible influences from Buchan, but without anybody up until now identifying any specific title of Buchan's, and Buchan wrote loads of books. Mm -hmm. So we know he read Buchan, but when we talk about say Midwinter or something like that, did he read that one? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. One of the things that I'm pleased with is I was, I was able to actually show that he had read um, Greenmantle, um, that there's a reference in one of his review essays that that I think proves it, um, which we hadn't had that before. Mm -hmm. um, so now we know he definitely read Greenmantle. So I talk about Greenmantle and slightly by association the other Richard Hannay books because it's part of that series, but I don't talk about any of the other Buchan books, even though there's all these interesting thematic parallels, because I don't know that he read them. And then mm -hmm. the prime example that I, that I actually put in as an example of who I'm not talking about is John Henry Newman. Mm -hmm. because it is inconceivable to me that Tolkien, who grew up in Newman's oratory, that it's inconceivable that he hadn't read Newman's works. But as yet, I have not been able to find evidence that he did. Um, I have right. found evidence, I actually went up to, uh, to Durham Palace Green Library and I found evidence um, in the Newman Association archives that Tolkien was in fact quite heavily involved with the National Newman Association over a number of years. Um, there had been a, a small connection noted by Douglas Anderson, um, which I then followed up and found out that it was quite a lot more than that one little connection had, had indicated. So that's new, I'm, I'm very pleased to discover that but I still don't know any particular titles. Um, so Newman in the book um, stands for all the authors that as yet, he almost surely he read them, but we don't know yet. So we need to treat them differently than mm. the actual certains. Really interesting, thank you. So Gabriel, have we got any questions coming in from the audience? Not, no questions from the audience yet. So just a reminder to everyone, um, this is an interactive session, there is a questions box in the top uh, sorry the bottom right corner of your screen so click on that type out your question as soon as you think of it and as if by magic someone has two people uh, no uh, yes two people have asked excellent questions that have just come in so thank you very much um and uh yes and constantine says may i ask a question here yes please do just type out those questions in that box um, and i will ask them for you um so Coley says, how do you see Tolkien's medievalism intersecting with his modern reading in his writing? Oh, that's such a marvelous question. Um, what I end up seeing was that Tolkien, the good image for Tolkien is as a translator or as a bridge because his medieval work is so significant. And that's something I think it's worth emphasizing. I'm trying to do a corrective to some views of Tolkien that have dismissed his modern reading, but I'm not trying to go the other extreme because his medieval reading, his medieval work is hugely important. Um, it's just enormously important. It's, it's undoubtedly more important than his modern reading. Um, it's really significant, but it's, but it's not the whole story. 
And so what I found is that he's able to use the material from his medieval reading and make it powerful and relevant precisely because of his rooting in the modern world. And I was quite struck um, by um, an interview with one of his students who was, um, who was talking about Tolkien's teaching of Beowulf. And he describes um, Tolkien as a translator who's able to make the world of Beowulf come to life for the modern students. And I think that's really a, the same thing he's doing with all of his medieval reading and all of his modern reading, because he might know the medieval world better than anybody else, and he probably did. But if it was just that, he would stay locked up in his, his world of the past and he wouldn't be able to share it with, with anybody. In order to share it, he has to understand the language of the people he's teaching that he's writing to. So mm -hmm. in fact, he has to be bilingual you know, both medieval and modern in order to communicate the medieval to the modern. Mm. And I think that's an aspect of his gift as a medievalist that has been maybe not as explored as it, as it could have been, or it's been hinted at, but without seeing how much he's drawing, how much he's drawing from his modern engagement. I think it's his, it's his reading of modern literature. It's his engagement with modern culture, more broadly speaking with the news, you know, things like that, that he's able to, really assimilate what are the modern concerns? What does he want to critique? What does he want to push back against? How does he want to respond? And then he has all the resources of his medieval insights, his medieval treasury to call on for images, for archetypes, for, for language, for all sorts of things. And it's that image of translator that to me, or bridge that really resonates um, at this mm. point. Mm. And of course, the Hobbit uh, and and the Lord of the Rings are, are supposed to be translations. I mean, the first edition right. of Fellowship of the Ring has this whole preface that says, "I found this book," and it's Bilbo mm. was tr the translator, or, or I translated Bilbo rather, uh, or Frodo. Um, and uh, and and also just you know the way that Lord of the Rings is is layered with history and different cultures and things. I mean, it does seem extremely apposite. The more you, you talk about it, the more kind of obvious it seems, but also the, <laughs> the I haven't thought of it like this before. So that's that's fantastic. Um, Coley also asks a question about Carpenter's biography. So this is something that you're, you mentioned sort of a, a kind of wisdom that's your, that you're questioning. Um, and so Humphrey Carpenter wrote the authorized biography of J.R.R. Tolkien. And that's where a lot of these ideas about Tolkien not being uh, a, a reader of modern literature come from. You know, he was only ever reading um, the, from the Middle Ages and that sort of thing. Um, and, and Coley says, uh, given that we have some reason for doubting the reliability of Carpenter's biography, which instantly you, you build an excellent case for in this book. Um, do you believe we need a new comprehensive biography to replace it? If so, what scholar would you want to write it? And maybe <laughs> oh. maybe you, could you do it? Well, that, would be good. That's, that has become something that I have been, been thinking about, to be honest, because I do mm. believe we do need a new biography. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I wanna add that I started out this research assuming that Humphrey Carpenter's biography was excellent, because it's the author's biography, of course, right. I assume it was correct. It was mm -hmm. only about five years in when I had amassed this, this huge heap of, of authors, and I'm starting to really analyze it, that I, I said to myself, you know, Carpenter says in the biography, Tolkien read very little modern fiction and took no serious notice of it. And mm -hmm. I looked at my research and I said, well, that's simply factually incorrect. It's mm -hmm. not the case. 
um, so then that sparked, it's one of the reasons this book took a long time to write because I, I wanted to find out where did this come from? How, how did Carpenter come up with this idea? Why has it been accepted? And that, that's something I worked through in the first and, and last chapters of, of the book. But I, I started out assuming that it was that it was fine, and then realizing, yeah, no, there's there's a lot of really serious issues with Carpenter's perspective. It's authorized almost by accident. It's not not was not a really planned and carefully you know vetted <laughs> biography. Um, so yes, we do need we do need a new one. Um, I certainly think of of the existing work, John Garth's um, work on Tolkien's Great War experiences in Tolkien and the Great War. I mean, that's just magisterial. Um, and, and was really influential for me as a, as a scholar in seeing how to take a fresh look at the research, you know, because Garth just goes and, and, and looks at it fresh and does new research and presents a really fully orbed and textured view of Tolkien, you know, his early years, his involvement with the Great War, where we see that Tolkien was very much engaged with this, this modern event um, and is very influential for his, his writing. So, um, so that, that, definitely is, is one I would point readers toward. It's not a complete biography, but it's certainly, you know, mm -hmm. fantastic for that section of his life. And, uh, and, and yes, I'm, I'm, I'm minded to do some biographical writing for myself, you know, next, next decade or so. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, I look forward to that. And, and I agree, we need more biographies. Um, so Kate, uh, and we've got loads of questions coming in. So thank you so much. So I'll, I'll ask a few more and then, and then I'll yeah. hand back to you, Sarah, for, for, and then I'll come back to the audience questions. Um, so, um, Kate, Kate asks a question, actually, this is one of the questions Sarah and I were thinking of as well, which is, do you have a biggest surprise? So it sounds like in writing this book, there are lots of surprises. The book itself was almost a surprise, uh, in the argument that emerged. Was there like a big surprise a moment when you thought, oh, wow, I had no idea Tolkien would have read that? I, it was a lot of a lot of little little surprises um, building up. Um, and after I had gotten a certain way into it, I began to expect these surprises in a way just to say, oh, the, he, he really read more than I thought. So let me be prepared for for these surprises. Um, some some of the little ones, I was really delighted to turn up. Um, I don't think anyone has noted this before, that uh, that he enjoyed the poetry of Dylan Thomas. Um, mm. Who knew? I, I didn't know. Um, George Sayre remarks on this, that Tolkien had, had praised the poetry of Dylan Thomas to him. Wow. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> so that was that was surprised that I had not heard that before. And probably a somewhat larger scale surprise um, is Tolkien's engagement with science fiction, because yeah. he really had a much, much more enthusiastic view of science fiction and a much wider reading of it than I thought. I mean, I knew he he knew some of the authors, but it wasn't until I did more of a sustained the sustained research and and saw what sorts of things he talked about that he spoke very highly of of the field, that he was knowledgeable about American science fiction. And I was surprised to discover that he was familiar with American science fiction magazines. Um, and again, this was, a, this was a little detail, but this did surprise me. Um, one of the things I tried to do in my research was to pay really careful attention to chronology, because that's something that has sometimes gotten blurred. Tolkien lived a long life, and people tend to mush up, or sometimes mush up all of the events you know, together. But there's a point where he mentions, he, he uses the word robot in his essay on fairy stories. And we take that for granted now, robot perfectly common word. 
but it was a neologism in his day. So I tracked down when did he when did he use this, and what was the usage of robot up to that time, and it was very little used. Um, and he certainly got it from the American science fiction magazines. And then in the Notion Club papers, he has one of his characters use the phrase scientifiction instead mm -hmm. of science fiction. And that's a very, very short-lived early description of what would then be called science fiction that came from um, editor of an American science fiction magazine. So there were a couple little word choice clues that by looking at the date, I was able to, to really realize that he knew the American science fiction magazines and he refers to them elsewhere. He knew them quite well enough to just sort of discourse knowledgeably on them. Mm -hmm. I found that quite surprising. Um, it, it fit into the larger picture once I had the, all the, the details, but it, it was one of the things that surprised me. And also along those lines, it very much surprised me to discover how nuanced his views on technology were. Um, Stuart Lee's discovery of the lost footage of the BBC um, interview with him. Mm -hmm. Wow, that great yeah. piece of research there by Lee. Um, yeah. And to discover that the, the interviewer asks him what he thinks is a leading question, inviting him to basically rubbish in, you know, industry and cars and talking in a very measured way says, well, factories depends on their size. Some are good, some are bad. Cars love riding in them, you know? <laughs> like driving them problem is the road makers who blast through all the scenery very nuanced and it's interesting because you know the the view of tolkien is anti-modern a lot of that blame comes from carpenter um but carpenter in a sense crystallizes and solidifies certain tendencies that were already there because even in tolkien's lifetime people were trying to cast him in a stereotypical anti-modern anti-technology nostalgic way um, and Tolkien resists it, like in this interview. So no, I like driving cars. Their cars are great. Just road makers are making a mess. Or another interviewer who says, again, gives him kind of a leading question, assume, assuming that he doesn't pay any attention to the news. And Tolkien says, oh no, in fact, I take three newspapers. I'm very interested in local news and national news and international news. And I was able to see, especially in looking at um, Warren Lewis's diary, which records you know, conversations he had with Tolkien, Tolkien was consistently very interested in current events. So again, we have this tendency to assume that he must be ignorant and dismissive of modern events because, because he must be, right? Because he fits, he, it allows, allows the, the reader or the interviewer to put him into a kind of a comfortable stereotype and avoid the fact that Tolkien is in fact challenging a lot of, of what we're thinking and you know causing us to think more deeply. But yeah, Tolkien had a much more nuanced view of technology. He, he was very vehement about the abuses of technology, um, about its, its, its totalitarian applications and power and the destruction of the environment. He's very against the abuse of technology, but nuanced about it. And I think mm. that makes him even more of a challenging figure than than he has been hitherto because we can't just dismiss him as a, as a luddite crank not mm -hmm. at all he has very legitimate criticisms um that i think we need to listen to yeah no it's very very easy to to put authors into pigeonholes and and so on um and just kind of following up from that matt asks um did well i, I maybe you've already answered this actually because he says um uh he's asking about sci-fi magazines um but wanting more 
details, it, it, and he asks, any chance you read Weird Tales? I don't know if you've come across that one. I didn't come across Weird Tales specifically. Um, amazing Stories, um, the um, Astounding, the, those science right. fiction magazines, those are the ones that um, that he knew. Weird Tales, I don't know specifically, um, Didn't okay. that didn't turn up. Um, yep. So I don't know. And of course, he met Arthur C. Clarke in the Eastgate Hotel with C.S. Lewis. And if, if I had a time machine, I'd love to sit on the table next to that and just listen in. Um, I time was had by all, apparently. Yeah. Um, we've also had a, a few questions um, about the same thing, which is about this other book, Aronzo uh, Chili's book, um, Tolkien's Library, which does a, a different thing, but there's some overlap. Um, and so people are curious about um, that book in relation to this book, um, because you have taken different approaches. So, so one of the things that um, uh, I, I hope I'm getting the pronunciation right. I assume it's Chili, or because it, it's an Italian name, I think. But uh, C I L L I. Um, one of the things that book does is include some of the things we we assume that he did read, um, and you've you don't do that, um, but um, but yeah, Constantine is asking about this. It's kind of curious, for example, um, Tolkien surely knew and even wrote a parody on him, Sherlock Holmes, um, but any particular book or story is unknown. Um, Constantine also asks, did, did Tolkien read any Agatha Christie books besides At Bertram's Hotel, which was a gift to his wife? So it's like a few things that we kind of think, surely he read more. What do we do with that category and how, how does your approach differ to uh, as it's chilies. Yeah, it's it's a tough question. Um, and I I opted for for rigor. Um, that's that we needed to know that he read something. So, for instance, um, it, it from from anecdotal evidence from his children, it seems clear that he did indeed read Bertram's Hotel. It wasn't just his wife's book. Um, and, and there's other evidence he praises Agatha Christie. We know that he loved Agatha Christie. Um, that's the only one title that I was able to find evidence of. But he speaks highly of her in general. Surely, obviously, he read multiple books. Um, you know, I spoke with Walter Hooper, and he remembered visiting Tolkien in the hospital, and Tolkien was reading an Agatha Christie book. Walter, obviously, at these passage of decades, couldn't recall what the title was, but you know, so we know that he read other Agatha Christie books. What the titles were, I don't know. Um, hmm. You know, we we know that he read you know some Conan Doyle. Had he read Sherlock Holmes? Surely he did. I don't have that evidence, so I didn't put it in there, and. And I think, you know, I think that Silly's book, Chili's book, is not as useful as it could be. Um, I I regret the approach that he took because I think that it 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 has a gr great deal of useful matter in it. I do draw on it um, for some points, especially for books that Tolkien owned. Um, it's it's useful for that, but I find that it's not nearly as useful as it could have been because he doesn't distinguish the probables from the certains. Right. Um, and one of the big issues for me where I, where I disagree with the method is that he includes those books that are used as illustrations in quotations that Tolkien worked on for the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, and I looked into this really, really carefully because it's so tempting. Look, all these, all these books, but looking at the process by which the um, entries were made, it became absolutely clear to me that in the in the editorial process the selection and choosing of illustrative quotations was totally separate from the etymological work 
they they didn't they didn't connect. Um, they were done on different times, different schedules, different people, different points in the process. So just because they happened eventually to appear in the same entry that Tolkien worked on tells us nothing. Um, we 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 don't have any evidence. It's 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 a zero. It's a it's a you know no evidence one way or the other. Um, and I think that including those in a list of Tolkien's reading um, confuses the issue in an unhelpful way. So I, I wish that those had been omitted, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can see that like, it's such a powerful thing when you can say for certain that Tolkien read that particular book. But also, you know, as you say, like there's just knowing that he read a and Agatha Christie tells you so much, right? That he was mm -hmm. reading that kind of work. And then you kind of think, well, you know, actually, why not? Like, why why wouldn't, you know, and then you kind of question a lot of things. Um, and um, there's just to, to tell everyone in the audience, there's this one of my favorite parts of this book, <laughs> just because it's so useful. It's this wonderful appendix where you actually list through everything and you you also say where you know this from where your evidence is from so it's incredibly useful um and it's really long and there's so yeah. many interesting things here um and um uh, i'll ask uh, just just uh, another kind of couple of questions from the audience before i hand back to sarah um but um uh and then i'll come back to the questions because there's a few more uh, that i haven't asked yet but i'm kind of wanting to rest my voice um una asks um a couple of specific questions uh you touch on t.s Eliot in the book four quartets in particular do we know if you read, read the wasteland mm. we we don't um we don't know if if i had right. known i would i would have put it in um uh so this actually is a good thing like once you read talking to modern reading if i don't mention the title it means at this point we don't know right <laughs> Because if I knew it, so I put it in. Um, but we don't. We don't know that he read the Wasteland. Um, we do know his familiarity with Eliot. Um, it would be very interesting to know. And I think that this is a case of of our assumptions is in a way maybe hinders hinders our research because people have conflated him with C.S. Lewis, who who was rubbished Eliot's poetry um, quite unfairly. Really, uh, he he didn't quite get what Eliot was doing. I don't think. Um, so I think people have, and this has been a, a flaw, people have tend to conflate Lewis and Tolkien in their in their views, which they overlap by a lot, but they're distinct in many in quite interesting ways. Um, and people have, have assumed that because Lewis totally dismissed Eliot, that so did Tolkien. But the little bits that I've been able to find about Tolkien's view on, on, on Eliot are cautiously positive. Um, you know, especially I thought his, his being sad at the news of Eliot's death um, and his he, he's disparaging of the memorial verse that Macefield wrote for Eliot. And the verse is dreadful. It's just the saccharine, trite, you know, awful bit of verse, totally inappropriate for Eliot, the modernist. And the fact that Tolkien criticized it tells me that he cared about Eliot and mm -hmm. that he understood Eliot's, you know, work enough to know that it's completely off tone. Um, but we don't know anymore. And I wonder in a way if part of why we don't know more is that people have assumed that he didn't like Eliot. And so they haven't looked. Um, mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of what people report about Tolkien that has been going on, you know, for, for decades, for Tolkien's entire life, really, that, that you have to kind of push against and say, no, not the stereotype, not the pigeonhole. What did he really think? Um, and Eliot, I think, is possibly one of the casualties of that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and Una asks a follow-up question. Um, I'm also curious about whether Tolkien read the war poets, Sassoon, Owen, etc. That would be fascinating to know. Yeah, um, I don't have really much on those. Um, I know that he, you know, he, he knew some of them. Um, his his friend um, Graves for, uh, Bridges, um, for instance, um, but. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have anything, for instance, of Sassoon or, or Graves um, mm. or, or Owen, for that matter. I think it would be very interesting to know if he did. Um, mm. Personally, I think he probably did know them, but I don't have evidence that he did, and so I don't talk about it. Yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned John Garth before his his book that. Um... And there's also a Signum course all about this, by the way, when we read Owen and Sassoon and we read at the same time what Tolkien was writing. And it's really fascinating to see them in conversation with each other. Um, and of course, you know, Wilfred Owen wrote a poem about King Arthur. You know, that wasn't, we're talking about pigeonholing Tolkien, but people pigeonhole everyone, right? They, mm -hmm. they write about, uh, they say, oh, well, Owen was so disenchanted and Tolkien was enchanted and it's not necessary. That's not the whole picture. Um, so yeah, that's as you say, it's like more work to be done, but I mean, amazing to kind of open our eyes to all of this. Um, and that really is one thing, one thing I just want to add. I hope that people yeah. will take this as in, an invitation to 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 look at these things, you know, more seriously and say, well, yeah, let's do exactly as as you do in that in that course, which is brilliant. You know, put him put him against his contemporaries and put them in dialogue. There's so much interesting work just mm -hmm. waiting to be done. Um, and in many ways, as I was putting together Tolkien's Modern Reading, I thought, I want this book to encourage people to do that. And it's one of the reasons why the bibliography is, it's 14 pages long. Um, here, read, go, go do more things, ask these questions, carry on, please, I wanna see it. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, okay, well, I'm gonna hand back to you, Sarah, but there are some more questions. Uh, so what I'll be doing uh, whilst you're asking a question, Sarah, is I'll be sorting through and making sure I haven't missed anything. And we'll try to get through all the audience questions uh, before the end of the hour. Cool, excellent. Okay, so um, with all of these wonderful modern authors that we know that Tolkien read, um, we can say, okay, we can start having conversations about how the works of those authors may have influenced Tolkien in what he wrote. But you make a really interesting point in your book about what you call negative influence. And I wondered if you'd like to talk a little bit about what you mean by negative influence uh, and how we could work with that in our scholarly reading of Tolkien. Yeah, it's just such an interesting topic because the question of of sources and influences is is a little bit a little bit difficult. Um, and I was faced in in trying to do my analysis with trying to consider you know Tolkien's own view of these things. Now we don't have to abide by what authors say that you know is a good thing to do with their work. We we need to make our own judgments. But Tolkien you know criticizes shallow source study. Um, and rightly so. Um, and there is a kind of source study that is reductive. Um, and the kind of source study that, that and other Tolkien scholars have again correctly criticized, you know, oh, you know, there's Gollum, there's Gagul from, you know, Haggard. Oh, beautiful, we, we figured something out. Well, mm -hmm. until you ask, why does that matter? Why should we care? You, you haven't really gotten anywhere. So there was the, that question about sources um, and also tracing out the difference between sources and influences because. Mm -hmm. They're not quite the same thing. You know, a source, I mean, Lewis gives you this book, a source kind of gives you an idea, gives you a scene or a character or something. Uh, and there are things that Tolkien names as sources, you know, 
And then there's influence that shapes maybe how you do things or gives you ideas. But then as I was doing this, this work, I found that even that nuance didn't, didn't quite cover all the ways that I saw him interacting with his material. Um, and one of those was what I, what I called, you know, what you call negative influence, influence by opposition, mm -hmm. where he sees something that's being done and he doesn't like it. And so he does something else or he does it differently. And I think this to me seemed very important because a lot of people have tended to assume that if Tolkien didn't like something, that he didn't care about it, you know, like, oh, write it off. Well, Tolkien, Tolkien didn't like a lot of things because he had extraordinarily high standards. Um, and he had extraordinarily high standards for his own writing. I mean, he goes back and he calls his own book, The Hobbit, a rabble, you know, because he's a little bit unhappy with his own mix of mythologies. So he's, 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 his own high standards apply to his own work, to, to everything. So he's very critical of, you know, some of the works that he reads. But I realize that that doesn't mean that they're not relevant. Quite the contrary. In many, many cases, he, he reacts negatively to something and then turns around and, and does it better, does it differently. And, you know, the, the sort of case in point is George MacDonald's The Golden Key, which mm -hmm. he loved early. Very interesting. His relationship with MacDonald is extraordinarily complex because he greatly admired him at one point, um, calls it almost perfect tale. And then decades later returns to it and hates it, just can't <laughs> stand it. Yeah. You know, again, we have to realize Tolkien's tastes changed. All of our tastes change over, over you know, your long life. But this is very dramatic. And he's so irritated by it that he ends up writing Smith of Watton Major. And he describes, he, he, he himself actually says that this was an influence by opposition, that this was the grit that produced the pearl. Um, and mm -hmm. he says that it often happens that way. And I thought that was really insightful, as is often the case, he says, the irritant produces the work. Um, and I thought, ah, he's speaking about an aspect of his creative imagination that we haven't paid enough attention to. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of it, like looking at what does he, what does he say that he dislikes? Well, if he takes the time to express his, his his dislike of it, he cares about it, he's engaging with it. And so I found, for instance, looking at his reaction to Charles Williams really interesting. He is well known that he didn't like Tolkien, uh, Tolkien didn't like Williams's um, spiritual thrillers. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he hated his poetry. Um, and I have to admit, I'm, I'm kind of with Tolkien in that one. I, I'm not a fan of Williams's poetry. I, I think it's, it's impenetrable, <laughs> but, uh, but be that as it may, it's um, Tolkien really didn't like the novels, didn't like the poetry. And since those are the works of Williams's that are now reprinted, people have very easily drawn the conclusion that he disliked everything that Williams wrote, you know, to court. But in fact, Williams wrote loads of things, very prolific, most of which have not been reprinted. Um, and Tolkien sort of praises in general terms his his plays, his 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 other his other writings, his reviews, and even makes a, a a positive remark about one of the plays in particular, The House of the Octopus. And so again, this is interesting. Like it's not just Williams in general; it's these novels and this poetry. Well, what is it about them that he doesn't like? And then in looking at what makes Williams's novels different from Tolkien's. 
And that, I mean, Tolkien read a number of, of Williams' novels, and you don't do that if you find them worthless, right? He didn't right. like them, but he kept reading them. And so clearly he found something engaging in them that he then reacts against. And mm -hmm. I think there's a lot more that could be explored in that area. I mean, I tentatively think that it had to do with the way that Williams does the supernatural in his fiction, which is not at all the way that, that Tolkien does it. And I, I do suspect that Williams, who was a member of the Inklings, who you know, got to know Tolkien, you know, lots of interaction there. I, I really do think that seeing the way that Williams handled the supernatural and saying, I don't like that, I, I suspect that it helped Tolkien to shape his own approach to say, but I want to do it this other way, clarifying mm -hmm. the way that he wanted to do it. So I think influenced by opposition, it's difficult to trace, but it can be very powerful. And again, in order to do influence by opposition, you've got to really know for sure what he read because <clears throat> you know you can't just say, well, he, he probably read that and didn't like it. <laughs> you gotta know, but if you know, then it's possible to kind of tease out some more complex threads of, uh, of his responses. Right, because if you know that he read text X, um, you know that for certain, and text X deals with this particular theme, and then Tolkien deals with that theme in a completely different way. That, of course, is how you tease out those nuances, isn't it? It is, especially if you look at the patterns. You know, what did he read in that genre? Um, how did he? What did he? How did he relate to that author's work in general? Um, mm -hmm. And it really gives you a, a much more three-dimensional look at his creative process. Mm -hmm. Right, because we tend to think of inspiration in a sort of more kind of positive way and oh what inspired him he loved this so much he was inspired to do we don't necessarily go straight to the idea of he read this but was inspired to do that sort of thing in a totally different way mm -hmm. yeah and yet one of the most famous accounts um is putting it right in front of us the famous so-called wager with lewis mm. why it's called the wager there there was no bet involved there anyway um this this wager with lewis um where they're looking at you know, science fiction. Well, there's there's not there's there's none of the you know the sorts of books that we like to read. We have to write them ourselves, and then they toss up, and Lewis gets space travel, Tolkien gets time travel. Mm -hmm. um, so every everyone quite naturally is interested in what they do with those. You know, Lewis's becomes out of the silent planet, which Tolkien loved and helped to get published, which is just I think worth stating. Um, and Tolkien's time travel, which of course he didn't finish because Tolkien, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, people get caught up in that, but I, I stop by, like, wait a second, in order to say there's not enough of what we like being published, they had to know the field and mm -hmm. they had to love the field because you don't keep reading in a, in a topic that you don't care about. You just don't read it. But they mm. kept reading, Tolkien kept reading science fiction because it was a genre that he enjoyed, that he found fruitful, that he found exciting. And his incredibly high expectations are unmet. So he says, ah, I have to do it myself. You know, and mm. again, this it's a more complex picture than just, I loved it, I want to imitate it. Yeah, I, I was just going to say Diana Glyer's uh, work on the Inklings as well as also sort of fits into that argument. And and we forget, you know, the Inklings weren't just three or four people. It was a it was a quite a big group of diverse opinions, as as diverse as you can be when you're all male. Um, but um, but certainly, you know, there were the back and forth. Um, 
so we, we've got loads of questions um so we'll we'll try to get through them all um uh, adam asks um is there a modern author and or genre that you would say is top of the heap of influences or is there an author genre he apparently enjoyed deeply without it being a discernible influence on his own writing something he enjoyed for its own sake I'm I'm not quite sure I even know really how to answer that that question to be honest. Um, and I, I think in terms of top of the heap, um, it's in a way difficult because I'm working with the evidence that we have, and the evidence that we have is partial and influenced by the selection biases of Carpenter and and others. So I have we we've got a lot of evidence for his reading of children's literature. Um, I've got multiple chapters on it. Um, so I, I think we could sort of tentatively say that children's literature certainly was a particularly important influence for him, and it did show that he was interested in it from his own childhood, also his children, also his grandchildren. He, he kept up with it, and he had it as an academic interest. Um, so children's literature was was quite significant um, in in terms of of influence um, and in sort of shaping what he was doing, how he was doing it. Um, whether it was more than other areas is difficult really to make that kind of judgment i would say mm -hmm. and presumably there's loads of books that he read just for pleasure like i mean i don't think agatha christie ended up in lord of the rings necessarily or who knows actually, maybe someone could make that case <laughs> well that's something I, want, I think is worth worth emphasizing it's a very good point gabriel because what i was trying to do is look at everything um and not everything then leads to a source study or an influence argument mm -hmm. And I, you know, and some of my some of my arguments I think are are very solid. Others are more speculative, um, and I try to indicate that, like maybe possibly, but there's a lot of authors that I just name and say he read these, and I think that helps our our understanding of him as well, because mm -hmm. the fact that the Tolkien was a reader of mystery novels just tells us something about his imagination. I mm -hmm. I doubt that it had any influence whatsoever on his on his writing. But, you know, Agatha Christie wrote her novels, they're, they're plots set in her present day, contemporary day. He's reading contemporary fiction, is dealing with contemporary issues. It shows his engagement with these issues. And that does end up being part of the influence for his work. So in a kind of indirect way, it's really useful to see just what does he read for pleasure, Agatha Christie, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and, and that gives us the, the bigger context to be able to make more of those judgments about influence and, and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, and there's a, a kind of related question to current affairs. Kate asks, uh, did you look at his newspaper reading habits, such as subscriptions? So like, you, you mentioned that he had three, he read three newspapers a day, is that right? Or well, he, he, he took three newspapers a day. Um, oh, okay. Do you know what they were? Um, I, I do. Um, I, I can, I could look it up. Um, okay, but, so it, it, but it's in the book. Yes. <laughs> okay, so Kate, Kate, look it up, and uh, that's another reason to buy the book to to get that answer. <laughs> I was thinking in the in the Bodley and Exhi exhibition, um, you have his doodles on newspapers, so we know that for sure. Um, <laughs> he read those newspapers, or at least doodled on them. Um, but yeah, that's a fascinating thing. You don't think about uh, talking, reading newspapers, but then again. Why don't you? Um, so yeah. Well, I think really. part of the reason we don't is because C.S. Lewis 
vehemently didn't. Right. And he, Lewis is actually, you know, newspapers are full of you know, lies and nonsense. And he and he very deliberately doesn't read them and says, if there's, he says somewhere, if there's anything important, one of my friends will tell me. Um, mm -hmm. And so that I think is, is one of the reasons why we've assumed like, you know, Lewis and Tolkien, um, therefore Tolkien doesn't read newspapers. And Carpenter says that he doesn't. Um, in, in a passage which I think is heavily influenced by a passage right. about Lewis, um, very, very heavily. Interesting. And, so, and constant, sorry, go ahead. Um, but I think um, once we separate the two, we can see that, yeah, Tolkien really was very interested in the news. And and I wouldn't be surprised if he was the friend that Lewis had in mind about the friend who would tell him if there was anything going on, because here's Tolkien with the three newspapers, surely if there's something, he'll tell his friend Jack. And Constantine says it's the Times, an Oxford local newspaper, and he if it, he can't remember the third, but it, it's in the book. So, um, Kate, you can look that up. Um, okay. Um, so, um, Scott uh, says, with regards to Newman's writings, have you looked at what he could have been exposed to at St. Philip's Grammar School and later liturgically serving at Father Francis's private masses? That is, what was used liturgically or scholastically at the oratory? Yes. And I, I haven't got anything that I could could put forward. Okay. Um, you know, one thing I, I can't be sure that he would have heard hymns that Tolkien uh, that that uh, Newman had written, um, because those were sung. Um, but I didn't feel that I I wasn't able to determine closely enough like what hymns and you know which ones were Newman's versus other ones in the Oratorian hymn book. Um, it didn't quite rise to my level of uh, of detail. But yes, I did look at those things and as yet have not turned up anything specific about Newman. If, if people do turn things up, please let me know. I would be very keen to know. For the second Fantastic. edition. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and I mean, Una's suggesting maybe a Catholic newspaper like the Catholic Herald would, would have been something that uh, Tolkien would have subscribed to. I don't know if you came across that. Yes, I've actually done a, a full search of all the Catholic Herald's archives, um, and which are which are now electronically archived, and um, I've looked at them also in, in, in the Bodleian. So there's okay. I do draw on the Catholic Herald materials for uh, for what I've what I've got, but uh, nothing that tells me what he read of Newman's. Ah, not not yet. Anyway, okay. Well, that's that's good to know. Um, and Kate, Kate confirms um, the book is sitting on my to be read pile. So so Kate has a copy, just hasn't got got through it yet. And it's fair enough. Um, and then then there's a few questions. Um, kind of about did Tolkien read this person? And that, so it, I mean, it really shows the enthusiasm and excitement of the audience. Um, but I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot with a few of them. But um, you could just let us know if it's in the book, and then people can can look it up. But um, uh, so Stephen asks um, uh, Nabokov, um, wait, if, he, if he read Nabokov, do you, we don't know or no we evidence? Okay, excellent. Um, uh, uh, Colley, uh, yeah, Colley asks, um, did you find that he was a reader or rereader of any of the lives of the saints? Um, I didn't look into that because my focus was fiction. Um, right. I am. Keep keep stay tuned because I'm I'm actually working on a new talking book, um, which oh. that sort of thing will come into it. So yeah, Fantastic. watch this case a couple of years time. Okay. Um, but so that is a question that I'm surely he did. I have not yet looked at that question. Okay, excellent, excellent. Um, uh, Aline says, as I'm not familiar with John Buchan and his book Green Mantle, would you give a brief description of this book and how it influenced Tolkien? 
uh, that's really difficult to do in a, in a capsule. Um, it's it's sort of action adventure with a little bit of a mystical twist. Um, it's set in set in the First World War, in fact, overlapping with it. Um, and and it's really impossible to give a quick summary of, of the plot. Um, and I would not say that it influenced Tolkien, um, but I think that his reading of it tells us some interesting things about his preferences and his views about heroism um because richard hannay the hero is is an active active hero but also a very moral one and he is never despairing and i think this is a really interesting line of thought because in tolkien's medieval reading the sagas are full of despairing heroes um you know lots of murder suicides and things like that um and hannay is a is a non-despairing hero even when in tight circumstances and it's quite interesting to pair that with Tolkien's critique of the sort of mystique of the hero um, that he that he makes in line with um, Hagrid's Eric Brighteyes. So it it helps us to see that kind of look at Tolkien's portrayal of heroes like Aragorn with kind of a fresh eye because Aragorn is really more complex as a character than it, than I think we sometimes give him credit for. He he has doubts. He's not sure what he's supposed to do at times. He considers himself to be a failure because he seems to be making bad decisions. He, you know, should I chase after Pippin and Merry or should I go after Frodo? And everything I decide seems to go wrong. He's, he's not the all-knowing, super competent, all-the-time figure that we might stereotype him as. So in that sense, he's much more modern than we realize. But he's not despairing. And the interesting thing is that the lack of despair is actually Tolkien revising his medieval material because it would be much more consistent with some of the sagas for, you know, Aragorn to you know, fall into a black depression and, you know, die. <laughs> so it's Aragorn's is much more complex. And I think the Buchan, Buchan's Richard Hannay gives us kind of a little bit of a side angle of like, the kinds of things that might have given Tolkien some some models on thinking about how to do that. Fantastic. Um, and there's uh, one question left. Um, there's a, a few questions that we sort of already touched on, so I'm, I'm going to move um, past those uh, because we're coming to the end of our time. Uh, so apologies if I didn't ask your specific question. Um, but uh, but I, I think you'll find the answers in, in this book anyway, if you haven't looked at it already. Um, but Catherine asks a question that we haven't touched on really. Um, uh, about Tolkien's friends. Um, uh, Catherine says, was it possible to learn the degree to which there was interchange between different fields in his professional life? Did he have other friends beyond the Inklings? Oh, what a good question. Um, yes, that's this is very interesting. Um, and in terms of my argument, I focused on his reading, not his relationships. So I couldn't go into that really in depth. But a book that was really helpful and influential for me was, in fact, Diana Glyer's The Company They Keep, which you alluded to before. Brilliant mm -hmm. book. Really just, again, challenges Carpenter and shows that the Inklings did influence each other. They did interact. They did collaborate. Highly recommended. Um, so we know that he he had these interactions. One of the things that surprised me as I did my research was just realizing how sociable Tolkien was. Um, he, he was an extraordinarily busy man. I mean, he had four children. Um, he had an extremely busy professional life, much more than Carpenter, I think, shows that he that he did. Um, Raymond Edwards' biography, um, Tolkien, um, although not perfect, is very good on Tolkien's academic work. Um, I think gets it more provides a better context than other than other biographers do. 
so he has this very busy life, and yet he's he's always he's socializing with his his students. Many of his former students became then family friends, um, and it's one of the things that struck me is that he had many women friends, and this mm -hmm. was something I didn't expect because the stereotype has been oh Tolkien and his his Inklings buddies in their little male only world. Not the case, you know. He we were married, unlike some of the Inklings. He had, he had a daughter, um, granddaughter. We spent and he, he very consciously spent time with them. I mean, the letters, you know, Joanna Tolkien's recollections of her grandfather are of a of a you know a deep relationship of a constant care and interest in her. He he gave her books. He you know you know helped guide her education. A, a really strong interest. He had many female friends amongst the English faculty. Um, he names some specific ones who are old friends. We don't know much about them, again, in part because people haven't looked at this material because they've assumed that Tolkien hated women, therefore there's nothing to look at, move on. There were a couple of women um, from his um, teaching at Leeds that he helped to get jobs at the Oxford English Dictionary, going out of his way to provide special training for them so they would be able to get the jobs. So he's looking after his female students. Um, um, Simon Dardenne um, was a, a student of his at Oxford who became a, a close family friend. Um, and one particularly interesting little tidbit was there's a um, an Oxford club called The Cave that he co-founded um, for Oxford faculty. Carpenter lists only male members, um, and every biographer since Carpenter has just picked up his list. So I had assumed it was a male-only club like the Inklings. It wasn't. It was a co-ed club from the beginning, and it had loads of female members, including some of his English faculty women professor friends. So he actually had a, a really co-ed, genuinely um, collegial and friendly relationships with a lot of women, much more so than, you know, for instance, C.S. Lewis, who, who had, had limited friendships with women. Um, so this is an area where I think Tolkien's friendships is well worth some, frankly, some fresh research, because just the little tidbits I turned up showed we've been just looking at this with, again, with assumptions um, and not seeing, like, look at all these women that he's genuinely friends with and, and you know, collegial with. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're coming to the end of our time, aren't we, Gabriel? Yes. Yeah. We could. We could go. I mean, we could. I could just listen to you all day, Holly. It's uh, fascinating to hear you talk, and uh, I've really, really enjoyed reading this book. Um, yeah. Una says that was great. Thank you all so much. Thank you so much, Holly, for coming. And yes, for more information, please see her published works. Yes, and <laughs> Una also says I would love to read a biography by you. So. Yeah. Definitely. So, you know, get on that. That'll be great. Thank you. <laughs> I'll, I'll see what I can do. Excellent. So thank you once again for joining us, Holly. This has been so informative and so interesting. And as Gabriel said, I love your book. I think it's great because it gives this fresh new perspective that we've been crying out for um, and that it, it does really shine a light on a lot of the limitations of the Carpenter biography that I think are really important that we actually acknowledge in the scholarly world and even for, for those who are Tolkien readers who aren't necessarily scholars it's important to I think understand that there are some huge limitations to what has up till now been accepted as the biography so um, that's been also really revelatory. 
but thank you for giving us your time. Thank you for sharing with us. It's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Well, my pleasure. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, and bye-bye.